Hello there and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and some excursions out into the awakening island. Coming up this time, we're in County Carlo, where the snowdrops are out, but not without the sweat of generations of gardeners, the latest of which at Altamont Gardens is our guide to the Galanthus. Joanna Walsh is here to continue her series on what it means to be an amateur online, and this time she strokes the lolcats into purring their significance. But we start this time with some Noor stories from Kilkenny writer Niamh Mulvey. After some time living abroad, Mulvey's returned to her home city and the sounds that inspired the stories in her collection, Hearts and Bones, and has also powered her first novel due out this spring. Mulvey took Culture Files' Quail and McNamara for a walk and some readings, Riverside, where they discussed, among other things, how the music of Fiona Apple fits into the writer's process. My name is Neve Mulvey. I'm a writer from Kilkenny. My first book, Hearts and Bones, a short story collection, came out in 2022. And my first novel, The Amendments, is coming out in April. We are at the back of the Butler Gallery in Kilkenny, right in the heart of Kilkenny City. This is pretty much where I grew up. My family, we moved around a lot when I was a younger child, but we had more or less settled in Kilkenny by the time I was a teenager. So all my teenage years were spent around here. I was in London for 12 years and just moved back last year. So I went to London to work in publishing. Um, I worked as an editor for initially a small independent publisher that was subsequently bought up by Hachette, which is one of the, the big five. And so I worked with writers, I worked with kids writers, with writers of adult fiction, literary fiction, and had a great time, basically. <laughs> Hearts and Bones is a collection of short stories and the way that I approached every story was I, I thought about one character looking at another character and wishing that they could understand them better. And, and that was that like desire to connect, to know, to understand is the sort of driving force of all of the stories. I thought about writing the book as an album, as a way of sort of tricking my brain. So I didn't want to think about writing short stories, I think because the short story is quite an exalted form and there's a lot of sort of myth and mystique wrapped up in talking about the short story that actually I found quite crippling and unhelpful. So I just decided to think of the stories I was writing as songs and Instead of writing a story, what I was really trying to do was to capture the atmosphere between two characters. I told you I didn't want to go to this dinner. You know I don't go for those ones that you bother about. So when they say something that makes me start to simmer, that fancy wine won't put this fire out. At that time, I just kept listening to Fiona Apple's album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. I was just listening to it over and over and over again. Uh, and I think maybe some of the feeling of that album might have seeped in to the stories. I think in that album, she is exploring 
she is, you know, looking back at the past, I think, in a lot of the songs and she's she's exploring a shift in perspective in how you might view your own life and your own past. Yeah, that line, kick me under the table all you want, I won't shut up. That was just, that was just my, my line of that summer. Okay, so now we're standing on John's Bridge in Kilkenny City. Uh, behind us is the castle. Um, and in front of us is sort of, we're facing, I think, north and um, yeah, Dunn Stores is on the left-hand side, another landmark that's mentioned in the book. And right now there's beautiful lights everywhere. We can see the library there in the distance. This story is called The Doll and it is about a young man who is who is in a relationship with a young woman but he doesn't really know how to be in a relationship with her or with any young woman really he, he's figuring it out I'm just going to have a, a read um, from this part of the story where this uh, doll character it sort of starts to take a more sinister turn so the main character is called Dar and the uh, doll is called Stuart it was getting dark and the sky was purple and hanging low over them like a shroud Dar felt very close to darkness and decay. He'd felt like he'd felt the last time things had gotten very bad. In the pub, James was talking, but Dar couldn't focus on what he was saying. All he could think about was Aoife, all of a sudden. Why had they broken up? Why had he hurt her feelings by telling her that her sexy nurse uniform was basic and that she was stupid and that he was bored? He pictured her strong legs striding across the road. He'd walked beside those legs. Those legs were going places. They were going good, decent places, like a job at the hospital and a house near the river. Those legs could have wrapped themselves around his neck if he just played his cards right. Yeah, right, Stuart said. Dream on. She was never going to stick with you. I started writing this story and, you know, it didn't go where I thought it would go at all. And, and at the centre of the story is, is the river here in Kilkenny, the Noor although I don't name it, but that, that's what I had in, in my mind. And it's funny, now I've just ended up living almost exactly where that story kind of takes place. Like my house, the back garden leads down to that river, which um, is kind of weird and kind of cool. There's this moment at the end of the story by the river, which which I think kind of represents this sense of of arriving at a new moment of sort of peace between them. Whereas at the beginning of the story, there was all this like fraught misunderstanding. One nice moment was just doing an event at the library in Kilkenny City. Uh, it was only a couple of months ago and I'm just always really surprised when people come to events that I do, <laughs> especially when there's not another author there. So I, I, you know, haven't done many just me. But no, there was loads of people and we, you know, I read one of the stories from Hearts and Bones and people really seemed to enjoy it. And afterwards we had a really great discussion about reading, about stories. And it just felt really lovely to be doing an event like that back in my hometown. My novel, The Amendments, is based on one of the stories in my 
short story collection, the title story, Hearts and Bones. And it looks at the experience of a young girl who uh, becomes pregnant as a teenager and then loses the baby. That's the kind of kernel of the story. And the novel sort of zooms out and looks at all the surrounding context. So it goes back in the past to look at this character's mother's experience. And then it comes into the future to look at how those experiences shaped um, this character's life. I have loads of plans, <laughs> but I do, I, I, at the moment, I, I feel so kind of like depleted is the wrong word, but, but, you know, everything went into this novel. It was a very just unbelievably involving process, you know, writing it kind of took over, took over my brain completely for, you know, a number of years. And I think since it's been done, I can just feel that I just need I'm now in a period of doing other things and I think it'll take a while before I'm ready to kind of go back in because hopefully I will write another book but I, I don't know what it will be about yet but I'm, I'm sure it will come. Niamh Mulvey there and the reporter was Quaylen McNamara. The Amendments is pre-ordering now for April. Next up, some internet archaeology, with the latest from Joanna Walsh in her series on amateurism. Walsh has been looking at the way in which how we contribute and consume online changes how we understand things like the amateur and the professional. In this new world, what is work and what is play? What is art and what is all this other stuff? This time in a piece called Our Aesthetic Lolcats, she rolls back the years to 2007 in search of answers to all these and to the equally key question, I can has cheeseburger? Around the time the lolcat site, I can has cheeseburger, debuted in 2007, the American cultural critic Sian Nye began to define what she called our aesthetic categories. Nye's categories weren't beautiful or sublime. They were interesting, something that holds information overload at a distance. Zany, a performance of precarity, which is something to do with production, and cute, an infantilizing minorness that merges commodity with the commodified self and is something to do with consumption. Despite its publication year, 2012, Nye's book was not about the internet. Just a year before Cheeseburger went online, 2006's Time magazine Person of the Year was Web 2.0 You. You control the information age, wrote Time's Lev Grossman. Welcome to your world. If Web 1.0 was the domain of coders and hackers, Web 2.0's technical development allowed amateurs not only to use but to build web aesthetics. Grossman noticed that this new aesthetic interface involved unpaid labour. We didn't just watch, he wrote. We also worked like crazy. We made Facebook profiles and Second Life avatars and reviewed books at Amazon and recorded podcasts. We blogged about our candidates losing and wrote songs about getting dumped. We camcorded bombing runs and built open source software. He could have added, we also made lolcats. A lolcat, in case you've been on a media-free retreat for the last 25 years, is a photo of a cute cat or cats, accompanied by a slogan written in zany, wonky English. These image macros, mutable combinations of picture and text passed around the net on forums and social media, have become the paradigm of online aesthetics. Web-native, they might be the internet's first work of art. The text on a lolcat can be changed. 
The cat can be changed. It's still a lolcat. This is memeing. Coined by the biologist Richard Dawkins in 1976, a meme works like evolution. Its form changes with each iteration. Lolcats have a few constants, a blocky font that frames the image top and base. The photography is visibly amateur. Lolcats are the opposite of professional. They're something we do for fun. But they're also something to do with work. Cheeseburger developed out of an exchange of funny cat pics between founders Eric Nakagawa and Kari Unibasami, they said after a bad day of work. The founders had jobs in software development, but Cheeseburger was made off the clock. It was an amateur project. I'd like to think about our aesthetic categories online. Our aesthetic lolcats. Are lolcats art? The 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote that an aesthetic experience has to have four things. The first is what he calls disinterest. We shouldn't expect to get anything out of it, like money or sex or fame. All things we think about when we think about the professional art world. Kant's second rule is an aesthetic should be shareable. And third, standardisable. The understanding, he wrote, can, by comparing the object with other people's judgment about their liking of it, make a universal judgment. So far, so social media. Traffic on Cheeseburger doubled when Nakagawa added a rating function that meant users could not only post lolcats, but award them cheeseburgers. Kant's fourth point was that aesthetic objects appear to be purposive without purpose. When this is an intentionally created object, a meme or a work of art, he calls this process free play. Cheeseburger participated in the Web 2.0 ethos of cost-free participation, but there's no such thing as a free lunch break. Commercial platforms reward us and themselves when we play. Cheeseburger's amateur community was monetarized when it was bought by web entrepreneur Ben Hur once its popularity exploded after only a few months online. Its founders had thought of folding, saying it had become too much work. Maybe it stopped being fun as soon as it stopped being play. Are lolcats play or work? In his 2002 book on meat space remix art post-production, French curator and critic Nicolas Bourguiat asked, what if artistic creation today could be compared to a collective sport? Sport exists at the intersection of play and work. Isn't art, Bourguiat quotes French surrealist Marcel Duchamp, a game among all men of all eras. A game is play that can be won. It has rules and is often professional. Is it possible to play at work? Or is playing at work incompatible with the rules of the game? Flaff was a kind of internet poetry lolcats, cheeseburgers exact contemporary. You search Google for two disparate terms, like anarchy plus tuna melt, Flaff poet Mike McGee explained. And using only the quotes captured by Google, you stitch words, phrases, clauses, sentences together to create poems. Founder Gary Sullivan described Flaff as wrong, un-PC, out of control, not OK, what internet culture calls not safe for work. Art, Kant writes, has a way of presenting that is purposive on its own and that furthers, even though without a purpose, the culture of our mental powers to facilitate social communication. Our aesthetic lolcats facilitate social communication online, but they also point to the idea of community offline, or they point to the idea of a workplace, the sitcom world of work, nostalgia for the cubicle, the myth of the water cooler, so different from the precarious gig economy of work from home 2024. Ben Haas said that lolcats are creating content that makes people happy for just a few minutes a day. Post-utopian content produced by lolcats content is very safe for work. 
Not Safe for Work proposes work as something with an inside and an outside. What's outside work? Everything that isn't safe. What is work, then? A space that needs to be kept safe. Where once leisure was a sacred space, now work is. Where we once worked to be at leisure, now we monetarise play to support our professional status. Lolcats were designed to be made and consumed at work, in timed comfort breaks, in secretly open windows, a secret everyone knew, generating a guilty pleasure that keeps us on the job. If aesthetics are the engine of online profit, lolcats are the prototype of web aesthetics. But despite opening doors to our knowing self-exploitation, lolcats also enabled amateur creators. Outside the net's white tech bro image, something also typical of Web 2.0. Memes have moved on since 2007, but lolcats are still a thing, and cheeseburger is still running. Kari Unibasami now works as a pastry chef. Eric Nakagawa is still in web development. Sian Nai still has no social media presence. Ben Hur, who claims that lolcats marked a shift in the way people perceived entertainment, is allergic to cats. Joanna Walsh there on amateurism, and she'll be back in a fortnight's time. Tchaikovsky specified April as the month for snowdrops in his cycle The Seasons from 1876, but no contemporary galanthophile, as members of the snowdrop subculture love to call themselves, with any sense would now go hunting those rare markings and rare shades that will make their day any time after February. In County Carlo, a particular cluster of snowdrops in a particular cluster of great houses has given birth to a snowdrop month, which is definitely 
February, a month for tours around houses like Altamont, Huntington Castle and Burton House, which aimed to turn amateurs into galanthophiles. Culturefile went for a peduncle initiation with Paul White, chief snowdrop wrangler at Altamont House. I have to say, I find January, I hate the idea of January, but then when you come in after Christmas and you actually start getting into it, all of a sudden, like, all these clumps of snowdrops, they're kind of doing nothing for a while. They're, they're growing, you can see them, but suddenly they're into flower, and you go, we're here. Bang. My name's Paul White. I'm head gardener of Altamont Gardens here in Carlow. Before this, I was in Phoenix Park and in various gardens around the country. So, been around a little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we, we're heading in this way, are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Snowdrop Collection started with Mrs. North, who was the last owner of, Snow, of Altamont Gardens. She kindly donated the house and gardens to the state. Um, now she passed away in 1999. But it was back in the 80s she started collecting snowdrops. She started by going to England and bringing certain varieties back. And then when she started having a few little varieties, then she would start, start swapping them with her friends in Ireland and two other gardens, famous gardens in Ireland. But also what she was very good at doing was rescuing snowdrops. So she would go around to abandoned gardens, gardens that had you know, long disappeared from Victorian times onwards, and she would seek out interesting snowdrops and she she had a good eye at this stage and was able to tell what well, that's different to that and was able to um, start her collection like that. So there's a few snowdrops here, there's one in particular that she found in that way um, and that's called Green Lantern. Oh, nice collection of snowdrops, yes. I'm Robert Miller and I am the gardener here in the wall garden here in Altamont Gardens. So just looking here, um, sometimes like so when you just have the flower itself, you need the whole plant, so you need the foliage because often the foliage can be a distinguishing factor as well. Um, yeah. And then you have a trumps. Yeah. And is that a comet? Yeah. 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 Now, did you witness that? There's only a handful of people in the world could do that. Do you yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> It's true. I think, I think. <laughs> she wasn't um, officially, um, professionally um, trained, but she learned. Like she would, by the time of her death, she was renowned in this country as one of the foremost gardeners in the country, and she loved her garden so much. It's like when she coming towards the end of her life she was so concerned that her gardens would disappear like so many other gardens and she knew she had distant relations she didn't have any direct family so she knew that if she left it to certain family members that unfortunately might disappear so um, so she then looked to the state and that's how we're very lucky to have what we have today Now, as we come into the garden, this is what we, is known as the nun's walk. And the most interesting thing about this is the beech trees. And when you, when you look under the beech trees, you, this is where we have our 
swathes of Galanthus nivalis, which is the common snowdrop. I suppose what you're looking at is a flower of three outer petals and three inner petals. Um, now they have a more scientific name, but for most people that's what you're looking at. And you're looking at a pedicel which holds the flower. And I suppose what you're looking at now is like that, when you look at the common snowdrop, that's kind of the standard of what everybody refers back to. So when you see all these new varieties, they kind of, it's variations of this simple flower that have people excited. And that's where, you know, people really go hunting for them. And these people are galantophiles and they know everything there is to know about snowdrops. And they hunt for all these special markings, like on the inner mark, in the inner petals, like on the common snowdrop, there's a simple green. But these can be X's, they can be heart-shaped, they can be yellow and the, the yellow snowdrops which are kind of the more kind of in vogue at the moment where you've got the yellow ovary and the yellow markings and they're kind of much desired now at the moment. So like when you think about the common snowdrop, you know, it, it's been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then suddenly a lot of Irish people went off through the Crimea to fight that war. But over there, they found a different snowdrop called uh, Galantis plicatus. And that snowdrop was brought back to Ireland and to England and to other places. It's the crossing of that common snowdrop and the placata snowdrop that gave rise to variations. So back in the 1850s, late 1850s, a lot of gardeners were kind of looking, oh, there's a seedling and it's very different. And that's kind of where the rise of the hunt for different snowdrops came from. And ever since then, it's been uh, exploded. Like, like we have here maybe 150, 200 different varieties, which is an awful lot, but actually, in the bigger universe of snowdrops, there's nearly two and a half thousand snowdrops. 20 years ago, you could identify a snowdrop and you could kind of figure out what its parentage and lineage is, but now it's just gone too, almost too much, but it's a good thing, you know, like, you know, because everybody's excited by new stuff. This is it here. This is Green Lantern. So what we can gather is that Mrs North, in one of her rescue missions to one of these old abandoned gardens, saw that growing, knew it was something distinctive. When you look at it, it has what you can see, green markings on the, the edge, the end of the petals. You see that? And then the inner petals it's much more pronounced green. There's a green splodge and, you know. But it was, it's not an easy snowdrop. Like it's one of those ones that are actually very, very hard to keep it going. So like at the time of Mrs. North's death, you know, 1999, we only had seven bulbs. Now we have a much more bigger clump now, but you know, it, it takes a lot of work to keep it going. Dedicated is the word, um, like on a cold 
like it's mild enough now and has been mild last year but on a cold February day to go out there and get on your hands and knees on a frosty morning and to really examine your snowdrops. Yeah, it takes a lot of dedication. The last tears over past griefs and first dreams of another happiness among the snowdrops with Altamont head gardener Paul White there. Snowdrop Month tours at Altamont are Monday to Friday throughout February at 2pm and for all events check carlogardentrail.com. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back next time with more chilly persistence. Meanwhile, have you ever thought of subscribing to the Culture File Weekly? You can do exactly that via the RTE site or your favourite podcast app. Till next time, thanks for listening and bye now.